Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman. I'm an attorney at the law firm of Grossman & Associates in Newton with an office on Nantucket. And welcome to Inside Divorce. I'm sitting today with Bradley Stern, who is the owner of Chestnut Hill Appraisals based in Newton, who operates all over Massachusetts appraising real estate. Hi, Brad. Good afternoon, Hindel. Brad and I have worked together for a while, so I trust his work implicitly. He's here today to talk to you about the appraisal process during the course of the divorce. So first, let's hear a little bit about you, Brad. Certainly. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So I've been in business since 1984, mainly doing residential real estate appraisals in Massachusetts, of course. During the past 20 or so years, I've concentrated my practice on appraisal in support of divorces and estates. I've also been qualified as an expert witness in several counties here in Massachusetts. So you've actually testified in court as an expert witness? Yes. How has that been? I enjoy it, actually. Do you? Yes. What do you enjoy about it? It's the only time I know more than a lawyer. (laughs) That feels good then, huh? It feels great, yeah. (laughs) So what is a real estate appraisal? It's an estimate of market value of a piece of real estate. And what does market value mean? Market value in this case, is loosely defined as the most probable sales price. Is it based on sales price currently or sometime in the future? No, it is actually several forms of appraisals. The one that you do in support of a divorce typically is a current valuation. So you do it as of the date of the inspection of the property. However, I've I've run into cases where an attorney wants a retrospective valuation, which is sometime in the past, and that can be done as well. The third kind is a prospective, which is a little bit more difficult and unusual, where you actually predict the value of something in the future, not of something of a piece of property. A residential piece of real estate. Correct, yes. And one thing I should add is my license allows me to do valuations of up to four residential units. Now, I also have a colleague on staff that allows me to appraise commercial property. So if you need something in conjunction with a divorce, we can handle that. Lastly, I have an appraiser on staff that put values, cars and trucks. Yeah, we've run into cases where one of the parties has an expensive collection of those types of personal property, and we can take care of that as well. Well, you have an interest in cars, I remember, right? Yes, yes. So you have someone else appraised. I'm I'm a real nut when it comes to that. (laughs) So let's go back to when you're an expert witness in a divorce case. What do you do to prepare? Several weeks before the trial, the attorney that engaged me to do the appraisal will ask me to block off one or two days. We'll meet typically sometime prior to the trial and go over my report. They'll go over the questions that they're going to ask me. They'll go over the answers that I give them. In some cases, they'll also ask me questions about the opposing counsel's appraisal and to perhaps find some inconsistencies in that report and prepare questions for them in support of the litigation. So long prior to your being an expert witness in court, you're retained by somebody, right? Yes. To do an appraisal of some real estate. Yes. Who are you usually retained by? It can be either an attorney typically representing one party to the divorce. There's also cases that, well, don't end up with me testifying. Those are joint engagements where the attorneys from both sides agree to use me jointly. Ah, so you do one appraisal on a piece of property which both sides agree to use. Correct. Regardless of whether they like the appraised number or not. Yes. What happens to the report and the number after I'm done is none of my concern. Uh-huh. 
You, I guess you usually don't testify as an expert witness in cases where you're jointly retained by both sides. Yes, I don't believe I've ever done that. Okay. So what is the appraisal process? So the appraisal process is essentially the same each time I appraise a residential piece of real estate. It begins with setting an appointment to look at the property, typically with a party that's lived there and is familiar with it. We'll go through the property. I'll take photographs of just about every room, including the basement and the exterior of the building. And I'll also take photographs of defects, perhaps repairs that need to be done. And I'll also interview the person that's showing me the house or showing me around because there's some things I can't see. Is the property on a termite contract? Is the septic system failed? There's a lot of things I can't see from my inspection that I'll rely on one party or another. The other part of that process is if it's a joint engagement and I'm doing the inspection for both sides, but only one party's at the property, I'll do my inspection, get my information from the party that's accompanying me. Then I'll contact the other side to kind of get their take on things. Because it often then happens that one side is advocating for a certain number per se, and another side's advocating for another number. So one wants high, one wants low. Correct. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And it's my job to kind of delineate the different opinions. All right. So after you make your inspection, what happens? So that's when the analysis starts. And I'll choose comparable sales. My best source for that is typically multiple listing. I'll start with a large sample of sales, and then I'll narrow things down. Typically, I'll use three comparable sales within my report, but if more are necessary, I'll use more. In a market where prices have remained relatively stable, three usually does the trick. If it's a market that's either declining or increasing, you may want to include a current listing or something that's under agreement because those are more in touch with current market conditions rather than some type of historical data, which is a comparable sale typically. Right. So what's the value of including a current listing if you don't have the sale price yet? Well, it shows that the market is strong or that the market is weak. If it's a listing, for example, that's only been on the market five days and it's already under agreement, the assumption is that the market's very strong. There's very limited inventory. Buyers are, are out there buying things at or above asking price. Conversely, if something's been lingering on the market for no other reason than the market is not strong, that's something that might be valuable to the reader of the report. How can you tell which communities have real estate which is increasing or stable in value? Okay, that's an excellent question. So that's something that's going to be in my report in a couple of different ways. One of them will be two MLS market reports. And in those reports, I'll take a sample of sales from the year prior to my inspection, and then the prior year to that. I'll compare year-over-year year median sales, and I'll come up with an increase or a decrease. Another way I check what the market's doing is a regression analysis program. That's a tool that I use in conjunction with my report. Great. So you include that in your report. Yes. So you really have a sense of the community you're uh, appraising when you write your report. The standards of professional practice that I have to adhere to require that I have what's known as locational competence. Essentially, what that means is I got to know my area. And if I don't, uh, I have to kind of educate myself to that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So you've 
done an inspection inside and out. You're taking some photographs. You do your research. You use your database. And then what happens? I'll write my report up. And, you know, my report's going to have a detailed description of the subject property that I'm appraising inside and out. I'm going to go into the features that I saw, the defects that I saw. If it's something significant, I may ask the party to obtain an estimate from a qualified professional to kind of quantify those defects. Conversely, if they have some receipts from some improvements that were recently done, you know, we can incorporate those into the report as well. And then I'll transmit my report electronically to my client. Uh, They'll review it. Typically, they don't, but on on occasion, they'll have a question about something that's in there, and uh, we can discuss that and either revise the report or leave it the way it is. When I've looked at some of your reports and other appraisal reports, I see the adjustments that are made in the comps. Mm -hmm. So how do you determine the adjustment up and down, the dollars for those? So typically, if a comparable is inferior to the subject, it'll be a positive adjustment to the comparable sale. It's an inverse relationship with something that's superior to the subject property. It's a downward adjustment to the comparable sale. And those adjustments need to be supported within the appraisal report. The way I typically do it is through the regression analysis program that we just talked about. Okay. So, for example, if the property you're appraising has a two-car garage and one of the comps only has a one-car garage, how do you determine the value of that extra garage? Right. So the sample of data that I'll put into my regression analysis will give me a degree of certainty as to the value per garage stall. Okay. And I'll plug that into my report. In that community? Well, within the comparable sales, actually. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's the best data to derive your adjustment from. I see. Yeah, if you use the whole community, it's a larger sample, and it may include properties that perhaps are a different buyer, Mm -hmm. different buyer pool, Mm -hmm. something that might be near the water. It's just, yeah, the best sample there would be of the, perhaps my original data sample of comparable sales. I see. And when you're picking comparable sales, how do you choose which ones to use? Okay. So my job is to match up as many elements of comparison or factors for the comparable sales to the subject. So obviously we all know location, right? That's one of the big ones. And there's many, many other factors that go into residential real estate, location, condition, room count, bathroom count, and the garage, of course, that you mentioned. There's also some factors that you just can't quantify. Landscaping is always a good example of that. That goes to marketability of a property rather than the actual value. Marketability is a factor that'll help someone perhaps make up their mind, but they won't pay extra money for it. Mm -hmm. And so in choosing a comp, is the school district that the house is located in important to? That's a very good question. And yes, absolutely. The thing about school systems is certain schools sometimes have the perception that they're better and that drives the market. It's not necessarily something you can always quantify, but if you ask around, yeah, school system's really important. And if you can't delineate a specific neighborhood, I always go with the school, the grade school district. That's the one that buyers are looking for. Uh, when they move into a neighborhood. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. Well, when um, clients ask me about appraising a property, I would say it's an art, not a science, because if there are two appraisals in a divorce case, I can say this with some certainty. They are never exactly the same number, right. same value. 
Of course, because they're appraisals, they're estimates. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be a range of value for a specific piece of property. And in fact, if you look at any appraisal report, there's always a range of the adjusted sales prices of the comparable sales. My job as an appraiser is to estimate where it lies within that range of value, the subject property. Right. Where it lies. Right. Now, if it's something that's obviously been recently updated, it may lie at the high end. Uh-huh. Something that's older, outdated, may lie near the lower end. Yeah. So I've heard of something called an opinion of value. You want to tell us what that is? Well, those are typically done by non-licensed appraisers. A broker, for example, will do a competitive market analysis. I've been a broker since 1979. I've done my share of these. They are supported with some data, but typically a broker will come up with a proposed asking price. And, you know, as a broker, your job is to get every nickel you can for that seller. Sometimes it's a little aggressive, but there's a lot of competition among brokers. They want the listing. Listings are gold these days in many communities. So, yeah, they, they tend to be aggressive, but they're not, as I understand it, they don't stand up in court. You don't see brokers testifying in court, and they don't have the degree of uh, support that an appraisal does. They don't have comparable sales, for example. Well, they may, but there's no adjustments done. Right. There's very little, if any, analysis done yeah. of the marketplace or the comparable sales. Right. So the comparable sales analysis is done by a real estate broker, not an appraiser. Yeah, CMA. Oh, I'm sorry. Competitive market analysis is done by a real estate broker, not an appraiser. Correct. Okay. So you need an appraiser for a couple of reasons. One is your numbers are more reliable because you have the process in place and yeah. the license. Yes. And then you can testify. Yes. If necessary. Yes. In fact, the, the state Senate just passed a bill introduced by the Mass Board of Real Estate Appraisers that all appraisals have to be done in the state of Massachusetts by a licensed appraiser. Ah, so this that is just a, happened? This is a new development that just happened. I believe it's going to conference committee. So in some respects, it protects the appraisal community, but I think it also protects, you know, the consumer. Yeah. What's one of the hardest things about being an appraiser? There aren't any hard things as far as I'm concerned. I enjoy what I do. Mm -hmm. Every day is different. I meet some wonderful people and I learn a lot of cool things and I'm not cooped up in a cube all day. I guess perhaps the traveling sometimes can get monotonous. You get caught in traffic and things like that. Yeah. You're always traveling to a property to take a look. Yeah. Then you go back to the office, to your desk to do the analysis. Yeah. Well, actually, when I'm done looking at the house, I like to drive my comparable sales as well. Oh. So if I've narrowed things down, hopefully to a manageable number at that point, I'll drive by each of the comparable sales and take a photograph of them. And hopefully it's not too long after they've sold. So things are kind of the same. And you'd be surprised. You see things when you're driving by that may not be contained in the multiple listing. So that's something you can follow up with later when you're verifying the sale. Now, I've swerved into something actually that's part of the process. Yeah which is the verification of the comparable sales. Mm -hmm. now, MLS is a great way to find out information about a property, but to go the extra mile, because this is a legal matter and it could go to court, you want to contact the party to the sale if possible. Now, whether or to not- To the comparable sale. Correct, okay. to a comparable sale. That's an important distinction. So whether or not a broker is a party to sale, I guess is up in the air. 
but that's the best you're going to do as an appraiser. You rarely can contact a buyer or a seller. And I've also found that the broker, after the sale is complete, sometimes they're a little bit more forthcoming as far as the actual condition or the conditions that occurred on the date the uh, property was actually transferred. I see. Might be willing to tell you more now that the sale is closed. Well, yeah, because when they're marketing it, again, their job is to get every nickel. Everything's always in the best possible light. But then we come back to reality after the property's closed. <laughs> right. So you verified the conditions. Yeah. And having something in writing from a broker involved in the sale, it's come up during expert witness testimony. You know, it's a great thing to have in your back pocket as support for something that you put in your report. I see. Extra verification. Now, you said you were qualified to appraise up to four family? Correct. Is that right? Yes. So that's a two-family house, single-family house, of course, be a condo. Right? Yes. As well. And also a three-family house and a four-family house? Yes. So is that considered an apartment building if it's a four-family? I guess by the standards of licensing, no. Ah. An apartment building from the licensing community is more than four units. Right. Typically, they're greater than four. Right. Units. There are different models for that. For example, when you're renting a property you own, if it's less than three units and you own or occupy it, you can pretty much rent to whoever you want. The rules of who you can have there and who you can't, I think, are out the window. I'm not an expert on that, though. So, yeah, up to four units, we're good to go. The only difference with a four unit or even a three, for that matter, will be the approaches to value that will come into play. So the three approaches to value are the sales comparison approach, sometimes known as the market approach, the income approach, and the cost approach. Sales comparison approach is when you're relying solely on comparable sales. Income approach, you'll use the income from the property that it can generate minus the expenses. That'll give you a net income. And you'll use either a gross rent multiplier or a capitalization rate to arrive at the estimated value by the income approach. Do you use that approach only when the property is in fact rented? You can use that in conjunction with the other two. Oh. Yeah. Okay. In fact, you have to. And if you don't use one of the approaches, you must explain why uh -huh. you didn't. So the income approach might come into play. The larger the number of units, the more accurate the income approach may be. Finally, there's the cost approach. So that is really only accurate or reliable when you have something that's perhaps less than five years old. The real estate the improvements depreciate over time, and it becomes more and more difficult. There's two types of costs. There's replacement costs, which is replacing the building with like materials, and reproduction costs, which is replacing with the exact same materials. Mm -hmm. Those are rarely used. I've never come across in my career one job in court anyways, where the cost approach has been relied on as an effective value. So the market approach is one you typically use? That's the one that I think most people understand, Yeah, number one. Yeah. And typically it's more reliable, especially in the markets we live in. There's plenty of sales usually. If there aren't any, you use something that you normally wouldn't use, perhaps something dated. But that kind of goes back to the process where you know, you'll find there's guidelines that people are more familiar with, with appraisals in support of a mortgage, for example. And those are guidelines from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that apply to the entire country. And in my opinion, don't really apply to the market where we live here. 
we have a very diverse housing stock, old housing stock for that matter. And to use a seal that's perhaps two years old in a mortgage appraisal, it won't fly. In an appraisal in support of a divorce, again, depending upon the property itself, its uniqueness, perhaps. Yeah, that's something that I would use because I can always account for the market conditions. Well, we have such a vigorous real estate market here. It must be relatively easy compared to places that have a quieter real estate market for you to find comps here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, though, you know, the, the inventory is pretty limited uh-huh. in terms of the number of sales here. So that can be challenging. You may have to use something from a competing neighborhood in your analysis. You may only have one good comparable sale, and that's one that you're going to hang your hat on, hopefully, in the final analysis, and then use others to support it. Yeah. I remember you did an appraisal for me last year where we had one number, and then the other side had a much lower number by about $150,000. Difference between one one and nine fifty, nine hundred fifty thousand, and it was interesting because the other side kept insisting that their lower value was because a house had sold on their street for the lower amount, but never looked at the condition of the inside of that house. I remember that specific case, and you're exactly right. That particular property was, I believe, an active listing on the effective date of my report. But if you look even briefly at the MLS listing from that property. It needed practically everything. Now, everything is also part of what the market expects. Mm -hmm. That was in a fairly affluent community, and buyers in that community expect pretty much state-of-the-art or a turnkey property. Updated Um, property. Exactly. Uh They don't like to buy stuff that needs work. They don't either have the time or the money Uh to do something like that. Uh So that's important to dig down a little bit. You can even go to an open house. Yeah. You know, if it's a current listing and see it for yourself. Yeah. Take a look. Yep. So that was that difference of opinion in that in well, that case. You know, in the universe of appraisals, so we were off ten percent, perhaps. Not really terrible in terms of the the difference. Uh-huh. In those markets, one factor can be a hundred grand easily. Yep, really. Garage, mm-hmm. even a, a nicely updated kitchen mm-hmm. can account for the difference. That can swing the value a hundred thousand. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you think about what a kitchen costs to redo in a larger home in an affluent area. To that point, I've seen something interesting the last couple of years in a market that we were just discussing where prices are going up exponentially. I've seen for the first time in my career where an improvement actually is bringing more value than a cost to a house. Very unusual. Because typically these things will depreciate the minute it's done. But now, once it's done, buyers are paying more. It's very unusual. What improvement were you referring Um, to? You know, it's something that most buyers can quantify. For example, a nice new kitchen, state-of-the-art kitchen. I've seen that in many cases where the buyers will actually pay more than the kitchen costs to do. And bathrooms, of course, too. They'd have to be factors that a buyer will use a lot. Uh-huh. get a lot of use out of. I call that price per wear. Price use per that, wear. Well, I use that expression if I were to consider buying an expensive piece of clothing, for example. If I'm going to wear it a lot, the price per wear will be low. And then I can justify the purchase. Perhaps a kitchen and a bathroom, because they get used so often, can be justified in that same way. That's an interesting point. There's one 
school of thought in the appraisal community that that's how you make adjustments, percentage of use. Oh. If you can narrow things down to the percentage of use, you can come up with an adjustment based on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Certain areas of the house get used a lot more than others, right? Well, exactly. And that kind of goes into finished basement. Uh-huh. Uh, that's something I find a lot. People put money into a finished basement and the fact of the matter is they don't you use never it. Use it. <laughs> so it's not worth as much as they paid to renovate it. Rarely seen unless it's something that's really high quality. Really? Uh-huh. You've got perhaps a theater down there or a wine cellar with a tasting room, you know, something that's very, very expensive. But in my experience, it rarely brings back anywhere close to what you're putting into Ooh, it. I see. And to your point, it's the percentage of use. Mm-hmm. If you drink a lot of wine, I guess it's worth it. Well, that's a <laughs> lovely hobby and, and uh-huh. certainly uh, something that I enjoy, and I believe you do too. You're right. Unfortunately, I don't have a wine cellar, but no basement, but it's okay. Okay. It's okay. I could find wine elsewhere. Yeah, I believe you could. Yeah. yeah. All right, Brad. It's been so nice having you here. It's and been thank a pleasure you speaking, speaking with you as usual. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.